Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is episode 142, and today is off. October 14, 2019. If you're listening to or maybe even watching Human Factors Cast, today I'm your host, Blake Arnsdorf, joined by, well, no one else. Today is actually going to be a solo podcast with just me, Blake Arnsdorf, your main and favorite host, as we all know, Nick Rome. He's going to be out off the podcast for a couple of weeks while he is doing dad duties. But we here at Human Factors Cast wanted to make sure we got you some content out this week. I know it's been a while. Thanks for sticking with us. Uh, Let's just see if we can enjoy this week's show just solo, me and you guys just talking well, I guess it's just me talking. But anyway, so we've got some excellent news stories this week, and we're tackling some questions from the community as well. And we're looking at things like this new neuroprosthetic that is an that is bringing AI robotics together with prosthetics to allow people to use their hands more freely than ever before. You've got some studies from the University of Washington, University of Wisconsin, Madison, and its local startup testing a one-two punch against hard-to-heal wounds, again using AI. And then a vibrating vest helps combat flight deck disorientation. And lastly, we're, we're, we're wrapping things up with some wearable skin. So this is actually hopefully a breakthrough in VR where you can actually have skin that allows you to understand what things feel like in your environment. But up first, some big time programming notes. So for this week, it's going to be an audio-only podcast. It's going to be audio-only podcast. Um, So no YouTube this week. Uh, It's a little bit hard for me filming here at the the house at the moment because as Nick and I have alluded to for the past couple of weeks, we're still trying to find a home for the podcast studio so we can continue, you know, shooting with the green screen, bringing you guys some fun video content. But stay tuned. That'll come together soon. Um, But we're really excited to be able to bring you guys some more coverage for HFES in a couple weeks. So as some of you may know, and those of you who don't, HFES's annual 2019 meeting is just around the corner, so it starts on October 28th and goes through November 1st of 2019. And this year, I'm so jealous that I'm not going to be able to go, and I'm sure that Nick is too, but it's in beautiful Seattle, and we'll actually be having a great friend and special guest who we'll have on the podcast later this week go to the conference for us in our stead on HFCast's behalf and gather some interviews similar to what Nick and I have done in the past so that we can put up some interviews with speakers or presenters throughout the week and we'll up those, upload those as we get them so we're hoping to get a nice handful of interviews to survey kind of what's going on at HFES this year uh, so stay tuned for those over the next couple of weeks um, so you can actually look for another bonus episode coming up this week with me and our special guest who's going to be actually going to HFES. And what we'll do is we'll break down a little bit about what's coming up this year at HFES, who's presenting, what kind of talks look interesting, something similar that me and Nick usually do every year. And you'll get a little little sense of like who we're sending out in our stead since Nick and I are not able to go. So I'm going to continue the podcast as normal per how our show notes are laid out. So a little bit of brief banter. I'm going to banter a little bit for Nick in case we have any new listeners on here. Nick has been slated to be a dad for a couple of, for I don't know, it'd be a long time now, a few months. And he is now a dad and could be happier, happier to welcome his newborn into the world. So, but be sure to join the HF cast Slack and you can check out and say hi and congratulate Nick personally. And you can also check out some of the, some pictures of the newest member of his family. But personally, we couldn't, 
I know all of us at Human Factors cast and in the Human Factors community are really happy for Nick, and we do miss him, but it's it's great that he's able to be home with his family. So, as for me, banter is going to be a little bit longer this week, and it might go on some tangents, but we'll see how it goes. So, as for me, I did this a couple weeks ago talking about Stadia, so I really wanted to get some, again, a crowdsource opinion from the HF Slack community or anybody who listens to the podcast at all about what I should do next in terms of fitness tracking. So recently during a work workout, I actually broke my trusty and true Alta Fitbit, which was just really a small Fitbit that tracked heart rate, our heart rate monitoring along with like your typical, you know, calories burned and tracking steps, but it also did a really great job of kind of giving me an idea of how I was sleeping at night. Um, and I was, um, kind of up in the air with a bunch of different options and I figured I'd just bring it out to the community and see if you guys have any opinions about this. Um, But overall, I mean, with Fitbit, I could just go back to it because I was satisfied with its tracking of caloric burn, how it captured my sleep, the heart rate, and also the silent alarms were great for getting up at like five in the morning and not like waking up my partner Elise so that I could get up and feed the dog without anybody knowing I had gotten up yet. Uh, But here's a couple options that I'm looking at. So I'm looking at this band called the Whoop Band. So it's basically an all-day monitoring system similar to a Fitbit or anything else. But this is really focused on like an E... I think it's an EEG. I might have that wrong. Um, But it's looking much deeper at your heart rate variability and it's got a lot of machine learning power behind it and so what does that really mean i mean a lot of the benefit of this specific band as opposed to like something like fitbit is it is actually taking into account how well you're recovering based off of like a strain score so kind of like your your workout score or your caloric burn but has a little bit more information attached to it and then how you sleep and based off of those two things plus what's known as like vo2 max it's going to give you a kind of an estimation of how well you recovered and then how well you should push it the next day if like you're going for a big workout or you like have a big day at ahead of you like you might need to recover more that kind of stuff something that i wasn't getting a lot from fitbit i was just kind of pushing myself and never really knowing like yeah okay i was burning a lot of calories but i or i didn't really sleep well the night before but it wasn't like he was providing me you know active advice about what i could do the next day and how i might feel how i might be able to get through a workout or how my morning was going to feel if i needed to you know make supplementation changes and anything like that Um, So an interesting tidbit about a couple of these, and we'll start with the whoop band, is that there is actually no UI on the device itself. So it's basically just a band that is doing measurements all day long, um, and the UI is completely within an application in your phone. Now, I'm not really sure how I feel about this or if this is something I... yeah, I'm okay with because I did come to kind of really like, you know, having the clock on my wrist at all times because the Fitbit doubled almost as a watch. Um, but at the same time, I mean, for some of these more intensive metrics and whatnot, I don't think I would want to be looking at them through through anything else but like a but a phone or but a dashboard online. So it's kind of a toss up. Um, so in, in addition to the whoop band, I'm actually looking at something also called the Aura Ring. I'm probably saying that wrong. It's O-U-R-A. So it's a similar concept to the whoop band very much like data-driven pro (laughs) a data-driven product so it it captures a lot of your heart rate variability um, different metrics that it uses to calculate and decide like have you slept very well the night before and then it compares that data you know data sets that they've seen before people that see 
sleep similar to you or anything like that through their kind of cloud computing system. Um, and it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty slick looking ring. So, I mean, that might be something that I wouldn't be like, you know, banging kettlebells into when I do kettlebell swings or anything like that. Um, but again, it has no UI, so this is very much like a dashboard in the web or an app-based kind of feature, so it's it's not like interacting as a clock, and I'm not much of a jewelry wearer, and since this looks much like a wedding ring and it's priced like a wedding ring as well, I'm not really sure how I feel about using that, uh, but I will say that a lot of people and doctors that I put a lot of trust in have suggested that this is a good way to track your health and get an accurate picture of, again, not just how well you're sleeping, what your heart rate look like, but based off of those metrics, how you should be feeling the next day, what should you push really hard to work out, should you take supplements, that kind of stuff. And the last option is more just like a goof option, really. So should I go for a Dexcom CGM, so a continuous glucose monitor? So this is something that I've been really... I've talked about on the podcast before, and I've heard a lot of it from different podcasts that I listen to with the, a specific doctor who's talked a lot about using a continuous glucose monitor from Dexcom uh, to just get an understanding of when you actually eat things, how does it affect your body? Because everybody is different. I mean, you can, we try at least, or I've tried at least a bunch of different types of diets and ways of working out, but I've never really understood from like a blood marker standpoint, what am I really doing? What's my body really react? How's it reacting to the things that I do or what I put into it every day? Um, but again, we're really talking about something with no UI that I actually know of. I think this would have to be interpreted actually by a doctor for me to get any sense out of it because I do not have any expertise in you know, reading any kind of measurements from blood markers or anything like that. Um, so no caloric burn. So yeah, no color burn counters or anything like that. It would just be purely based off what I'm eating. So that's more of a goof one. But so here's what I'm looking at. Either replacing my Fitbit, going with a whoop band, or trying something like the Aura Ring. So I figured I'd throw it out to the community. Are you guys interested in fitness tracking? What do you use to track your fitness if you are? Um... Let me know your thoughts. You can all you can tag me in the Human Factors class Slack in the hashtag random channel. This would be a great place to go on and on about fitness stuff if anything, if you're interested in any of that kind of stuff. And we can just go from there. Okay. So that is way too much banter. And I'm sure you would like me to get on to what you actually come here for. So I'll hit the music. <laughs> All right, so it's that time of Human Factors cast where we actually drop into the news for the show. <laughs> so this can be anything related to Human Factors, and this could be anything related to medical, robotics, neuroscience, AI, you name it, as long as it relates to Human Factors, it is fair game. And in this case, it is Blake What's Up First, or as the show notes read, but it's basically just going to be me back and forth about these different stories. Um, so here we go. Let's break into the first one. So scientists in Switzerland have announced the creation of a world's first for robotic hand control, a new type of neuroprosthetic that unifies human control with artificial intelligence automation for greater robot dexterity. So neuroprosthetics, aka neural prostheses, are artificial devices that stimulate or enhance the nervous system via electric stimulation to compensate for deficiencies that impact motor skills, cognition, hearing, vision, communication, or even sensory skills. So they've, we've talked about a few examples of this on the show before, including things like brain computer inter interfaces or BCIs, but this also 
includes in this category is deep brain stimulation, spinal cord simulators, bladder control implants, cochlear implants, and even cardiac pacemakers. So how this specific technology works in this case is a myoelectric prosthesis is used to replace amputated body parts with an externally powered artificial limb that is activated by the user's existing muscles. So this relates a little bit to a story we talked about a probably a month or two ago that we that at least from my perspective and i feel like nick did too it was very much kind of like luke skywalker's robotic hand it's it's connected into your muscles and it just activates and seems like it's able to actually connect with the tissue respond and get based off your brain signals and actually move very well so according to this specific team's research team, the commercial devices available today can give users a high level of autonomy, but the dexterity is nowhere near as agile as the intact human hand. So that's the big problem everybody's trying to solve. So through machine learning, the hand is actually able to make predictions about positions that the fingers may take allowing it for more to give more dexterity in comparison to existing models, which don't have this predictive analytics behind them. So the robotic hand is able to react within 400 milliseconds and is equipped with pressure sensors all along the fingers, which allows it to react and stabilize before it an object before the brain can actually perceive what that object is doing. So say something was slipping, for instance, your brain would actually go ahead and detect that it was slipping. But because of the way this robotic hand is designed, it's actually using much more predictive analytics behind it of saying like, okay, based off of where the object in my hand is already in position and how it's moving, even though the signal hasn't got quite to the brain yet, I might need to grip this or or I'm kind of personifying what the actual, you know, AI hand would do. But I mean, this has a lot of wide reaching implications. I mean, the biggest one that comes to mind for me is definitely vets, right? Because it talks, it mentions in here, like forefront of the article that this is really to help replaced amputated limbs and that's like something that could be amazingly useful for people in the veteran community but the other aspect of this is the fact that we're using and bringing in ai automation and intelligence and robotics to basically develop a new type of prosthetic that's kind of combining this neural aspect that we see from things like BCIs with the predictive analytics power of artificial intelligence and automation. Now, the fact that it's able to actually, you know, predict what your movement pattern may be before your brain can actually process what that is, that's an incredible leap forward. And I can see like why they named this article the way that it is. I mean, they call it an AI robotics breakthrough, and I think it really is. And it has a, and just the fact that not only are we now binding, you know, AI and robotics into a prosthesis, but we're allowing it to, you know, to some degree, not directly communicate with the brain. But at the same time, now we're giving people more dexterity, which I think is a big part of what may have been lacking in the past with definitely older prosthetics, but anything that's kind of more new age, even the stories we've talked about recently, like it it was very much like you had to, there had to be a lot of pressure sensors that were added and they didn't necessarily stop you from breaking a glass, for instance. So, I mean, from the, the, this is kind of a, a silly way to put it, but from like the user experience of the world or getting your feeling back into your hand or your leg or your foot, you're now able to almost feel like you did if you, when you had it when you had a real hand uh, before the robotic prosthesis maybe was added. 
Now, the, the thing I don't understand why they're really focusing on the neuro part of this, and maybe this is me not understanding the article totally, um, but for right now, it seems like this is much more focused on just the robotics and the AI aspect. So I'm not really sure how it's making this connection between the existing prosthetic and your neural impulses, because that's that's kind of what it's making it sound like happens, but it, it focuses much more on how how the the like myoelectric prosthesis sensors are interacting with with each other and machine learning in the background to be able to make these movements for people so it's a, it's definitely an awesome step forward in so many domains in prosthetics and ai and robotics in medical science and i can only imagine like the the avenues this can go down for people that have either never had the experience of having an arm or a leg or a foot or whatever it may be and those that may have lost in various accidents or you know in combat and stuff like that so it has a lot of awesome wide-reaching implications Okay, so next up, we got a story from University of Wisconsin-Madison. So this is a local startup that's actually testing a way to heal hard-to-heal wounds. So millions of people, and this is kind of incredible incredible to believe, but millions of people with severe burns or diabetic skin ulcers could benefit from an experimental enhancement to a next-generation skin covering that's already being used to heal difficult wounds. So about two years ago... A company started adding this, I'm going to try my best to explain this, adding a gallium metal ion to an ultra-thin material carrying microbial silver that can actually detect biofilms that that shield bacteria from antibiotics. So basically, you're adding metals to what for all intents and purposes, is kind of like the thinnest Band-Aid ever. And in many cases, these chronic wounds that would typically remain open for months due to difficult to treat infections or that are often shielded um, from you know being healed by antibiotics because of these deep infections. But by adding this biofilm that is covered in some very fine metal ions, they're actually able to see the not only the wound start healing, but they're also seeing that you can start to treat infection and and i'll be completely honest the biochemistry of what's going on by adding metals into you know your own biology i don't quite understand i think this blurb explains a little bit of it about this film so the this biofilm that's used is called the microlite and it contains a tiny dose of metallic silver particles on a absorbable polymetric multi-layer film. So that's a little bit what I was talking about a second ago. It's got these two very distinct types of metal ions that it's adding into this very thin layer, almost skin thin, um, poly- like almost polymer film that you put all over a wound. And so it's flexible and it's only about 25 micrometers thick, thinner than human hair and covering places silver in direct contact with bacteria and wounds. So this is actually how the mechanism that it's acting on to actually start healing wounds is by putting this silver or these metal ions directly in contact with bacteria within within a wound. So microlite can help eliminate pain eliminate the pain process of repeated removal that is needed when conventional bandages are placed on tenacious wounds and an aging population with rising rates of diabetes and growing problems of antibiotic resistant bacteria all lead to a bigger problem with persistent wounds so if this particular metal ion and this biofilm of microlite really works to defeat these different 
infections that are caused by long-term open wounds or hard to heal wounds, there's there it's a giant break in the commercial space because according to this article, there's actually no commercially available formula that is used for disp- used to kind of disperse of these type of type of wounds that are like that stay very open. You have to like do a hospital stay, take a lot of heavy antibiotics. So I mean. What is the implication here? So in a, from a healthcare perspective, something like this could really impact how doctors are treating these kind of long-term wounds, if you will. So, I mean, one big way to think about this is the amount of time that you're spending in a hospital under point of care. So once you get into the hospital, you're having to check in, you've got a wound, your doctor has to come, keep coming and seeing you. With the amount of people that are experiencing these kind of really types of really hard to heal wounds, having something like this that you could use and you know it's much more effective than maybe having to jump to antibiotics immediately, or it it kind of allows you to have a, a few more tools in your toolkit, if you will, that reduces, you know, need for continued surgery or using heavier, you know, medication or stitching up wounds. It gives you a little bit more of an option and i could imagine like down the road right now i'm sure like the application of this like the mention like the end of the article talks about there's really no um current analog in the commercial space for this but i can imagine over time if something like this develops this biofilm you know becomes sprayable it's not like a a big deal to carry this around or have this as like just a bandage i can imagine being like a spray of nanotechnology if you will um and so over time, stuff like this can be much more portable. You could just, I can imagine like EMTs using this like as a starting point before you actually get somebody to the hospital. If they've been in a bad car accident, you can start trying to heal bits of wounds. So although this feels like very much somewhere between, you know, the intersection of the most powerful technology in like microbiology and also, and at the same time, like I guess biological chemistry as well. It also feels very, very sci-fi because I mean, this is if you if you kind of take it out of context, this is like healing really unhealable wounds in some ways, or that's at least the way they describe it. But the way that it's doing it is basically hacking your own biochemistry. Because in this, and I definitely encourage people to check out this article in detail that was posted in our Slack earlier this week, because it really details like the fine level of grain detail. Because these metal ions that you're actually putting in your body through this microfilm, they can be super dangerous and high volumes. But in this case, at this like micro, probably better said as nano level of, you know, exposure, you can heal from it and it can actually have an impact on, you know, where the infection is drawn to, where bacteria is drawn to, how your uh, muscle tissue starts to reconfigure so that it can actually heal. I mean, there's so much packed in this tiny article. And again, like kind of the application from the human factors perspective is I think it can change the way that people are in the medical field or are able to kind of like treat others. So it, it gives you one more tool in the toolkit and the workflow in your workflow, right? Whether you're an EMT and you're kind of on a, a dangerous call where you're not sure if somebody's going to be able to get, you know, the amount of blood they need quick enough. Can they get them to the hospital quick enough? This may allow you to start, you know, stopping some bleeding, starting some healing before you can actually get somebody to a hospital. Or in the case of a doctor, if you've had a lot of different interventions already, say like 
this this is a wound that keeps coming back or keeps like refusing to heal by being by being able to bring something like this into it that has that maybe the body's never experienced before it's not an antibiotic um and it has less ability to maybe grow resistance to the type of chemicals that are already in here for healing now you're able to kind of circumvent the issues that we're typically experiencing in the medical field so it's just a, an interesting way to kind of look at what can we do with current technology both like in science medical and in some ways kind of the biology definitely the biology but also thinking about like how do you heal wounds at a like micro level and using nano almost technology so it's a pretty sweet little little patch that you can throw together all right so enough rambling for those two stories i'm gonna i'm gonna go to the, the patreon commercial break and i'll see you for two more stories after this Human Factors Cast strives to bring you the best in Human Factors chatter every week. We pack news, interviews, reviews, and overall fun conversations into each and every product that we put our seal of approval on. But we can't do it without you. You see, the Human Factors Cast network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running this show come from the listeners. That's why we're giving back to our supporters on Patreon, now more than ever. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like 24-7 access to our exclusive Human Factors Cast Slack channel, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Cast Infinite, a Patreon-only podcast where the topic is human factors, etc. We're always updating our rewards, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you all, and remember, it depends. All right, all right, all right. So just before we get back to the stories, I wanted to go ahead and give a shout out and a thanks to our friends at the College of Engineering at the University of Madison, Wisconsin, or Wisconsin-Madison, I do believe, Psychology Today, Embry-Riddle News. And for all the stories this week, if you want to check them out, you can always jump on social media or follow us in Slack uh, for the links to the original articles. And also, I'd like to take a second to give a shout, a special thanks and a shout out to a longtime supporter, Patreoner, and active member of the Human Factors Cast Slack, Mateo. Mateo, man, I really couldn't have done the show without you this week. Thank you for being so active in the Slack and throwing stories up that are really interesting. And as Nick's, Nick would say and has often said, you were definitely the real MVP. All right. But anyway, so let's keep on going we got two more stories to cover and these are some pretty interesting ones so up next we got a vibrating vest that helps combat flight deck disorientation so four hours of training that's all it actually takes to attack a problem of spatial disorientation uh, among pilots and to save pilots lives according to the research conducted at embry riddle's department of human factors and behavioral neurobiology so spatial disorientation in flight occurs when pilots feel clashes with reality or what pilots feel clashes with reality when they believe they're flying upward, but the plane is actually headed toward the ground, for example, and blinking lights, heads up displays, and a variety of other safety controls are already available in the flight deck to counteract this occurrence. But according to a lead researcher, Dr. Brendan McGrath, those features are all visual, and he believes that the complete solution lies in using another one of our five senses, so touch. So many pilots who find their vision obstructed or attention distracted are not in the loop as it is. However, they might come in, uh, they might not even realize that they're out of the loop. 
That's where the tactile situation system, or TSAS, comes in. A device that vibrates at different locations and intensities along a pilot's torso, alerting him or her to irregularities in a aircraft's orientation. So if a pilot is if a pilot is flying a plane and it's rolling slightly to the left, for instance, the vest will lightly rumble on the pilot's left side, and it will continue to do so until the roll is corrected. So by utilizing vibration, the vest takes visuals and even an intellectual processing out of the equation. Pilots don't need to be able to re- see or read their controls. They only need four hours of training, and then they're pretty fluent with a tactile device. So tactile processing takes place at a more reflexive level in the midbrain, and the goal here is to align the information in the cockpit with the way that we take information in on Earth. So this is definitely a really interesting concept to me, because I... I would assume, because because for those you don't know, maybe this is the first time you'll, you've listened to the show, maybe you don't really know a whole lot about human factors as a field and its kind of origin, but the world of kind of aerospace and safety is a big place for where human factors got its start. And so thinking about the fact that, you know, we, we definitely understand how people are best at processing information when it comes to, you know, high risk situations like flying and you know aviation human factors is a giant field i mean embry riddle is a great example of that they have an awesome program related to this i know a a fair amount of people that came from that school that focused on you know getting their pilot's license and being a human factors engineer later on and so it's interesting to me that of all that's in the cockpit which if you've ever even seen pictures of a cockpit or if you've been in a simulator or maybe played a video game where you could see a cockpit there are a lot of dials lights bells and whistles going on and going off all the time and it's kind of hard to orient yourself to them but you i've always assumed i guess with training pilots are able to really you know get a good sense of you know where all the controls are what they need to be paying attention to and when but this article is brings up a good point in the fact that a lot of these indications are visual and maybe some are even auditory depending on, you know, the instance or what may be going on. Uh, but in this case, when you're kind of thinking of an emergency situation, right, where maybe you are having to fly and anybody who's a pilot or who's interested in, you know, aviation human factors, if I get this wrong, let me know in Slack. I'd love to know. But I, I would assume like if you're flying, you know, I think it's called IFR, so flying with your instruments only while you're going through the air, like maybe flight maybe flight conditions outside are really bad, you can't see what's going on. I can imagine this disorientation could be very, very intense. And you could be making, to, if, if things got bad and you made the wrong decision, you could be, you know, making maneuvers that are counter- counteractive to what you actually need to be doing and if you're seeing a lot of different flashing lights a lot of dials moving a lot of interfaces kind of changing all at once it's it would kind of be disorienting just from a view viewing at your console much less like trying to understand what's going on with the yoke or where you need to go in terms of direction so something like this vest that's basically just taking you know the other senses out of the equation in terms of your vision worrying about the auditory and just telling you by tactile feel like okay you're you need to actually turn left to correct what you've done or you need to turn right or maybe even i'm not sure if the vest does this but even giving you a buzz on your like the front of your torso or your back to indicate like going forward and down i mean i could see a lot of you know really i 
I could see you would have to fine tune this, right? Because you don't want it to be like a jerking thing or something that really jolts you out of your seat uh, when you ru- when you're you know flying a plane. But I definitely agree with a portion of the article that talks about the fact that you know from the visual perspective you have to you have to really expect that attention is going to be there because when you see something out of the corner of your eye or even right in front of you, like flashing color or changing, you're more. You're kind of, you have a few more steps you have to go before you understand that information, right? So it's kind of like that cognitive processing model of, okay, it's got my attention. What does it mean now? I have to kind of analyze it. Whereas when you're thinking about tactile things or even like it, putting your hand on a stove accidentally, for example, if you put your hand on a stove, the reflex is to get your hand away from it. And I think that's the mechanism they're trying to play with here is by feeling something you know jolt on your right or left side you realize like oh okay i need to recorrect correct what i've done based off of that direction that i felt the jolt on um so it'd be much more of like a reflexive correction than like a processing correction of oh i see that that light is flashing that light flashing means x y or z i need to do these other things instead it's just like you've rolled too far now fix it based off of of a vibration so I don't know. It's it's one of those things that I don't know a whole lot about because I've never, you know, actually flown an aircraft. I've only sat in some simulations before. So it'd be interesting to get points of view of other people that are, you know, into flying, maybe have taken flying lessons, of course, professional pilots. Actually, I'll have to ask somebody about that over the weekend because that'll be kind of fun to follow up on next week. Um, but as always, let us know across social media about what you think of any of the stories, what you think of any of the content from the podcast. Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback. All right. So let's round this set of stories out with something a little bit both wearable and VR because we're missing Nick and we definitely have to do something VR why he's not here. So a new wearable skin lets you touch things in VR and in fact be touched too. So scientists at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology have invested an ultra have actually have invented an ultra thin second skin that can deform and adapt to your moving body. The skin is designed to give you touch feedback that feels natural without using electronic vibration. So converse to our last story. So this could be a breakthrough breakthrough that VR headsets have been missing. The skin is equipped with pneumatic actuators that will actually make you feel you're touching something real rather than just st- simulation of an electronic haptic engine, which is typically what's used in VR right now. So the artificial skin also has integrated sensors that send data to data used to modulate the pressure so the scientists claim that this is the first time this has actually been accomplished so according to research this spa skin as it's called is a multi-functional multi-layer system that can readily be implemented as a high-speed wearable bi-directional interface that has a lot going on for contact sensing and vibrotactile feedback so in other words if you wear a glove or a suit made of this artificial skin it will allow you to feel a surface in a virtual reality world or if something is touching you so if you're playing that game of alien you could feel the alien touching your back so the company's next step will be to develop a fully wearable prototype for applications in rehabilitation and virtual and augmented reality they are looking to test the prototype in neuroscientific studies as well scientists anticipate that doctors will be able to stimulate the human body while researchers study dynamic brain activity in an mri or magnetic magnetic resonance imaging experiments so this could if this 
can be made a viable product, VR could certainly take the world by storm. Now, for anybody who's li- listened to the podcast knows well enough, I don't have nearly as much experience or expertise in, you know, researching or understanding some of the mechanisms in VR, much less playing VR as Nick does. So I'm bummed out he's not here to kind of give his two cents on this one. But at the same time, I think this is a giant leap in a crazy direction because the the few times that I have been at a VR headset, there is always kind of this difficulty for me of feeling, you know, the super immersiveness because I one, I don't, I'm not moving typically. And two, if I touch something, like it's very much like I'm in a video game. It doesn't, it doesn't like interact with me or provide me any kind of real tactile feedback. And if it does, it's like this talks about, it's much more of like haptic based feedback. So that vibrating similar to the vest story we just talked about, or in this case, it's talking much more about not only are you feeling surfaces, but it's kind of the world can integrate and interact with you as well. So, you know, from like a video game perspective, you know, monsters that get near you could be touching your skin. If you like had a suit of this type of stuff on, um, or if you're like, you're moving through, you know, let's say a map or whatever, and you're opening doors, you can actually grab the handle, push it open, that kind of stuff. And you can interact with the environment around you. So this is, it's pretty insane. I mean, the fact that we're again, like really pushing this wearable skin um, and now taking it away from the medical side of things, and we're going to put it into VR that allows you to, you know, experience the world in a much higher fidelity and a much higher immersion. I think this has a wide range of implications. Of course, me being a nerd, like the video game implication is pretty huge. It, it sounds great. Anything that makes these like headsets a little bit more immersive or these systems a little bit more immersive, I think the m- more fun people are going to have and the more they're going to get into it, if you will. Um, but at the same time, I don't really know where they're, where they're going with like trying to understand brain activity while using these wearables or this wearable skin. I would imagine they're trying to see, is it close enough to like stimulating areas of the brain? that are similar to what you would see, you know, if, if I was like grabbing my phone right now, would I see the same brain areas light up as if I'm wearing this skin and I'm touching a, you know, a simulated version or augmented reality version of my phone. Um, just to try and see like, is this actually the same thing are the same mechanisms at play here? Be interesting if they're not, that would be really cool to find out. Um, but at the same time, I feel like training could get really, really immersive for this. Um, I I feel like there's a a wide variety of military applications in this case, right? Like being able to put on a full suit and, you know, experience what it's like to do underwater movements, like have to, you know, like being in a pool and having to, you know, go through specific training or, you know, even for astronauts being able to feel what it'd be like in the space station as opposed to like doing a virtual simulation and, then lastly, like the, the one that I love to bring it back to is the medical context, right? So what is it like, you know, interacting with a, in a virtual world, in virtual reality with high fidelity as a surgeon, as a brand new surgeon or somebody who's trained to be a surgeon? How could this like make things feel much more real based off of, you know, programming in the VR using, you know, good, you might not even have to use like prosthetic bodies or anything like that in the, excuse me, in the real world because you might be able to program a lot of and program some of the feedback. I want to say haptics, but that's not the right word here. The feedback that you would get through this kind of like skin for VR. Um, so such a wide ranging set of applications outside the video game world, even though that might be where I'm most excited to see it at. So 
anybody who knows or listens to the show very often, I I'd have a feeling you know this is my favorite part of the show. And this is, it came from Reddit. So let me get the sound bite to work. It came from. It came from. Sorry, I let that play way longer than it's supposed to, but it's just kind of a cool little beat, so I figured I'd give us a little bit more. But this is, it came from Reddit, so this is the part of the show where we search all over Reddit to bring you topics the community is talking about, or that interests you in human factors, or even UX. So this is, these are all both coming from the UX subreddit this week, so let's get into the first one. So posted by Topography, so how to react if you receive a lowball job offer. So going on, topography goes on to write, what should I do if the recruiter calls me back on the phone next week and presents me with a super low offer? How should I react in the moment? Is it okay to say I really enjoyed meeting with you guys, but honestly, that number seems really low. I'm looking for something closer to X. Now keep in mind, I read that with emphasis in my own words, not in (laughs) topography's words. Or should I be more indirect and just say something like, thanks for the offer, let me get some time to think about it. For reference, I'd like to be making about 85 to 100K minimum of my next job and fear that they're going to offer me around 70K. Uh, They do seem really desperate to hire, so I feel like I would have some negotiating power, but I don't want to come across as ungrateful or unreasonable. All right, so when these kind of questions come up, I like to be super blunt. Um, so be careful with the words that you choose here. Um, I've helped a a fair amount of some of my students like with job advice. And this is something that I, that has come across, come up a few times now and saying something like, I really enjoyed meeting with you guys, but honestly, that number seems really low. That is not really the way to go. Um, you, you kind of want to be tactful with how you approach these situations. If you say that they give you a lowball job offer, you probably one you, you should, from my perspective, and I am, I am not like the top job hunter. Uh, I, d- I don't have any great credentials to, to be giving some of this advice, but I have like, you know, worked with a lot of great mentors and gotten advice myself. So this is just me giving my two cents back to the community. But if you get an offer, I think most of the times it's best to say you're going to think about it. To be like, loved meeting with you guys. Even if you don't have other offers on the table, it's good to take something, get out of the context in which you're in. Don't let people press you into any kind of making a snap decision on the fly. Take some time and think about it. Because what we don't know as listeners or me as a reader on Reddit, I don't know what else the company's offering you. I don't know where you're located. So I don't I don't know if like the the scale that you're expecting is correct for the location. And also too, you want to make sure even though you you'd like to be making X amount, are the benefits like great enough? Like does 401k great? Is the healthcare great? Are, are there other things that kind of help make up for that gap that you're experiencing? Now, if you feel like 
and are very self-aware and understand your skills and you think you're being low-balled based off of your skill set and your experience with other people and the things you've done in the past, you know you shouldn't be making, you know, less than X at this point in your career, then yeah, it's it's definitely something you should do is negotiate with them. Talk about like, I really cannot come come to this job offer with less than this amount or now, if you can meet that amount, are there X, Y, and Z things that you could do for me instead? You know, could I have more paid time off? Could you, you know, send me to a conference? Are there like things you're willing to negotiate with them, with them about? Um, I don't know. I, it, this, it always gets tough for me, right? Cause I, I get one to be able to make a good salary, good money, but sometimes like like you just have to be prepared to say like even if it's a job you think you want and they just can't meet you price wise you've got to make a hard decision and can i can I actually sustain my life at its current pace and current style on this lower salary for a job that i really love um will they neg- negotiate with me as a company is that something they do there's a lot of reasons to really, you know, weigh here. But if you feel like you, you have to be in that one bracket or that's like, that's the next level up for you, definitely just make sure you don't come off, come off ungrateful by saying things like, like, Hey, loved meeting you guys, but I really can't come in at any price point lower than this. You can leverage other job offers that you have, or you can say like, if you guys can't meet that, are there ways that we can negotiate? Are there other things that I can get out of this learning opportunities, more responsibility? And one thing that I learned from the last startup I was at is when you get into the situation of negotiating, you know, money for a contract or money for your job, be prepared. If, if, there's room for growth. Like say you come in at 70 K, but there's growth potential to get to hundred K. If you, you know, do X, Y, and Z, then if you know that going in the door, you can already start planning like based off of what you just, let's say you're, you're coming in as like a design lead and you get into the, into the team and you see that there is like massive imp- opportunities for not just growth, but like creating a better product, or you see that there's ways to start measuring, you know, some of the productivity of the team to hack some of the growth, like focusing on their KPIs and stuff like that, then yeah, you, you can try and make that gap between 70 K to 85 based off of things that you've actually done for the company. And you can like show them, you know, Hey, here's like my measurable impact on the company. And this is why I deserve a raise. Um, so definitely weigh the pros and cons. Know if the job is for you. Like, have you, have you interviewed at other places? Uh, but also know the climate that you're looking at. I know in the Reddit comments, there were some great comments. And one was if you, if you're thinking you're going to get big tech money from not a big tech firm or not a big tech company, you're not right. You got to think about that and understand that one, like big tech companies pay that amount of salary. Um, but also part of that equity is stock. So it's not just like cash value. Um, but also too, like they're able to pay that because they're so big. There's so much product coming out of there versus like we're for a small guy where you can still have a lot of impact. You're not going to make the same amount of salary. Um, so that's my two cents. If anybody else from the Slack community or the human factors cast community, or anybody listening to the show has any kind of opinions about what do you do for a low ball offer? Feel free to hit us up on social media or in Slack. All right, so I got one more Reddit question to wrap up the show. This was posted by Little Winging. So the question is, 
how do I get freelance clients? So Little Wing goes on to write, my career is in design and art direction and have freelance experience in those areas, but I feel like UX might be a little bit different. So since it's a new industry for me, I was wondering how people get freelance pro bono projects. Where do you reach out to recruiters? Is this through LinkedIn, Craigslist? Do you email nonprofits or startups and say, hey, I noticed, can I help you with this? I love that they wrote that out. And if I'm not, if I'm also not a developer, would I need to work with somebody as I'm freelancing or does that depend on what the contract says, AKA I can perform research, do surveys, user testing, but it's up to the business to hire someone to bring it to life? That's a great question. I've just noticed that a lot of people don't go into the logistics details of UX freelancing in the sub. So if anyone can share some knowledge or insight, I'd be really grateful. So you are in luck, and maybe I'll try and reach out directly on the UX subreddit to this question and say that I answered it because I've had a little bit of experience with this. I am definitely by no means the best freelancer out there, but I've got some tips. The biggest one for just, let's just start with the question. So how do you get freelance clients? You network and then you network some more and then you keep networking and then you go to HFES and you network and then you go to another conference and you network. So that is just, that's the key to it. You have to build some street cred, some credibility to your design and UX and what you can do. And a lot of that is going to start with coming through volunteering, doing free work. And so that gets into another part. But so how do you get freelance clients? You network, you talk to people in your field, you talk to people outside of your field. You just you basically just meet people left and right. And eventually somebody's going to say, like, based off of talking to you, experience with you, like, hey, I actually know somebody that can do X, Y, and Z. Let me see if they are available to any available for any freelance work at the moment. That's how it all really starts. Um, so, okay, let's let's jump in a little bit deeper. So, how do people get freelance pro bono projects? Where do you reach out to? Where do you reach out to recruiters? Is it through LinkedIn, Craigslist, yada yada? One thing that I will say is I have typically gone. Actually, I've gotten one freelance job through the UX subreddit um, of a developer posting about the fact that hey, I know nothing about design, but me and my team have created this application. Can you help us out? Or like posting to anybody, and I replied to it. So UX subreddit's a great place. Um, in terms of reaching out to recruiters, if you're looking for a job or trying to get an agency job, reach out to a recruiter for sure on LinkedIn, wherever. Um, but if you're trying to get freelance or pro bono work, that's probably not your best bet because you're again, you're going to need a reputation or some kind of portfolio to show to a recruiter to help you get into like an agency job or something like that where you're kind of able to do more quote unquote freelance style of work, not necessarily freelance work. Um, in terms of emailing nonprofits or startups and saying, hey, I noticed X problem with your website, can I help you fix it? I would avoid that tactic. One, because, there, and this is this is a really popular thing in design right now, um, or in like UX, liter- UX literature, <laughs> across like UX, stuff you read about UX right now. And it's like not understanding why design decisions were made because you were never a part of the company. So that's the danger of, hey, I noticed X with your website. Can I help you fix it? Well, you may not, you likely are coming in from an outsider's perspective. And yeah, you may know how to do, let's say like a, a heuristic evaluation and maybe something just doesn't make sense on a website. But what you don't understand is any of the work that's gone into creating a feature. 
So it's it's much better to just try and have a conversation with a nonprofit or a startup, especially if you happen to notice that, the, that maybe their website could use some redesign or a startup doesn't have a website, um, but you've heard about them from a friend. That's the people to contact and get in with is people that are not necessarily looking for you to come in and be the UX designer, but who actually need it, but don't have either don't have funding for it or never thought about it. You don't really want to email them and just say like, hey, I, I can fix everything for you it's more of like having a conversation getting to understand like what does a nonprofit do um have they ever thought about the workflow or their website what how did they even start same thing with a startup like what is the product they're trying to build how are they making decisions about design like really getting engrossed and learning a bit more about the company through somebody you know or through a cold email that's more the route to take and then getting a rapport and that can maybe help get you some pro bono work all right this kind of kind of part of the last question here is if I'm not a developer would I need to work with one as a freelancer um, I'm gonna cut that up, cut that real quick if you are a UX designer and you do not know how to develop that's perfectly fine but be prepared and be willing to work with developers so you can actually make this thing real um, which especially if you're like a freelance to contract person you, this is really important because let's say somebody hires you to kind of do build the front end of their website from just like a graphic standpoint you're going to want to know how to hand stuff off to a developer so yes i think that is something you're going to even if you if you don't know how to code or you don't want to know how to code, knowing how to interact and hand off your designs to developers very very important. Um, and one th- one thing that you may want to look into, just based off the question, this is just me trying to be blunt and very explicit because it's something you need to understand if you want to do freelancing. You need to be writing, you know, pretty good contracts. So if the contract, whatever the contract says, is what you need it to say based off of your skill set. All right, so. Don't just let somebody hand you a contract and then and in there somewhere hidden is like you actually are going to develop these things. You need to be writing your own contracts as a freelancer. So that's something to learn how to do as well. Um, so that's kind of my two cents on like how to tack, tack off freelancing clients. Uh, ultimately, I always recommend people if they have the bandwidth to do it, to start out doing stuff for free, build a good rapport with people because that will get you clients out the wazoo and have you people coming coming after you and like asking you for either help on projects or like recommendations of other people and that can ultimately lead to paying jobs so that's really all the time we have for today i'm gonna go ahead and cue up that outro music let's see if it works there it is oh there's that outro music that sweet sweet outro music everybody thank you for Everybody, thanks again for putting up with the solo podcast and the time off. We're getting it together. We're trying to find somewhere to be able to do this consistently. But, you know, we love doing this content and putting it together for you. So myself, Nick, whoever else we can bring into the fold, are going to figure it out. Um, hats off to Nick for becoming a dad. Just can't say that enough. That's so amazing and incredible. So I'll leave you with that for this week. So that's it for today, everybody. Let us know what you think about the stories for this week. If you're a Patreon supporter, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to do an after show tonight. But look forward to that bonus episode later this week about all about HFBS. For the rest of you, you can join the discussion on our Slack or follow us on any of our social media channels at H Factors Podcast. You can also email us anytime you have a question or a comment at show show at humanfactorscast.com if you like what we're doing and want to support the show you can leave us a review on podcast medium of your choice or consider supporting us on 
Patreon. And of course, you can always reach us at the home at our home on the web, humanfactorsdesk.com. That is a lot to read, Nick. I don't know how you do that every week so flawlessly, so flawlessly. But I've been your host this week, Blake Arnsdorf. You guys can find me in the Human Factors Cast Slack or humanfactorscast.com. But you can also find me at Don't Panic UX across social media. Good night. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.